It is an honor for me to be here with you today. Um, the last chance I had to be here at Frederick was many years ago. I was um, had the privilege of speaking along with Desmond Doss for one of the first White Coat reunions. And I will never forget, um, after the service, um, a very popular person who I had admired many years, Elder Joe Cruz, came up and um, um, spoke to me, and he gave me a book, which actually is our title for this morning, The ABCs of Faith, that was written by Elder Kuhn. And I kept that little book with me all my life. And so coming here today, I, uh, the last few weeks, I decided to simply use that as the title for this special occasion. I want to thank our Pathfinders for having me here today. In fact, I'd just like, if you are a Pathfinder or a former Pathfinder, I would like to invite you to stand at this time. Look at this. Let's give them a big amen. Many of the principles that I learned that helped me so much in the military were learned when I was a pathfinder. And I've always just kept that very close to my heart. Now, if I talk a little funny or a little fast, I ask you to please bear with me. A few years ago, um, when I... The Lord impressed me to go into ministry. I was decided that I would go to Oakwood College in Huntsville, Alabama. Now, I had served as a Bible worker for, for many years. And in fact, 10 evangelistic crusades, I had the chance of organizing young people to give Bible studies. And so one of my heroes was a retired minister by the name of Earl Cleveland. And many of you have heard of Elder E.E. E. Cleveland. And so I decided to make that my very first class that I would ever take in college would be by Elder E.E. E. Cleveland. Now, when I went to the class, no one told me that the class was so popular that they had to hold it in the church sanctuary. And they would be, it's many times there'd be as many as 300 people there. So this is my first day of class. I had never been to school in my life. I walk in, I sit down. And finally, he walks in. He has a sheet of paper and he looks on it and he says, there's a boy here that used to work in the White House. Where is he at? I didn't say anything. He looked again and says, I know you're here. And so I thought I better just raise my hand and get it over with. And so I raised my hand. He says, come on up here. Come on up here. I was horrified. I stood there in front of the whole group and Elder Cleveland looked at me and said, well, say something to the class. I looked and said, sir, I don't like speaking in front of people. He says, you don't like speaking in front of people. What are you studying to be here at Oakwood? A preacher. (laughs) That made it worse. Finally, he says, say something to the class. And so I started talking. And talking, and talking, and talking. And finally he yelled, stop, stop, stop. He said, son, we're going to have to work on you. You talk so fast, and your grammar. He says, of all the people I've ever heard speak in my life, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say the word Jerusalem in one syllable. I'm going to ask you all to bear here with me too today. Now, one of the things that I would like to say before we start out, people like to ask me all the time, what was it like working with the different presidents of the United States? I started with President Reagan. I ended with President Clinton. And I will tell you this, that the Lord humbled me very fast and very early. 
You see, there's one official rule in the White House Honor Garden. It's this, that you're never allowed to speak to the President of the United States, even though he, some days he's right next to you, unless he speaks to you first. And they let you know that from the very beginning. Do not speak to the president because a lot of times we're with him and he's about to speak and he's going over his notes. And so we're not allowed to speak to him unless he speaks to us. Now, I had been there for maybe a week in training. And they finally made this announcement. We need someone to open up a door for a banquet. Where's that Johnson at? The sergeant said. And so I raised my hand. He says, Johnson, get up here. Can you open up a door? I said, yes. He said, well, this is going to be your first assignment. You might, you maybe see a congressman or a senator or something. So you better be on your best behavior. I know you've only been here a week. And so we go to the Hilton Hotel there in downtown D.C. And I have to be honest with you, it was probably the most fanciest thing I've ever seen in my life. Ladies in evening gowns and sterling violins. It was just absolutely beautiful. And they assigned me to a door and they said, uh, as soon as you see the Secret Service in the back nod at you, you open up a door and then maybe the congressman will walk by you and go up and they will give their little speech. So I'm standing by the door and then all of a sudden the strangest thing in the world happens. A Secret Service agent walks by me, goes up to the platform, takes the microphone and simply says, I need everyone to please leave the room at this time. Please gather all your belongings. So people started leaving and, and then they brought in bomb sniffing dogs. And so I started to leave and he says, no, 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 airman, you stay there by the door. Now I'm thinking this is fine. If this place blows up, I'm going to be the only one left in the room now. <laughs> I'm horrified. I'm standing there and just thinking the dogs are sniffing everywhere. And then finally did the strangest thing. They started setting up metal detectors like at the airport at all the entrances. And then after a half hour or so, people started coming back in again. And the place was full. I'm still there standing by the door. And finally, they give me the signal. I'm excited. I had called my mother and told her to look at C-SPAN. She might see me. I was so excited. The door opens, and instead of a congressman, President Ronald Reagan steps out. I shouldn't have been near the president. They hadn't even checked my background clearance yet. But he had just decided an hour before that he wanted to come and say a few words. So Reagan comes out and he has a few moments. He's looking at his notes and he's looking around. Then he looks at me. He sees my name tag and he says, Airman Johnson, how are you doing today? My chance to talk to the president of the United States of America. Now, let me take you back in time just a little bit. My first week in training, when they first told us that if we could speak to the president, if he speaks to us first, I asked a question. I said, can we ask him anything? They said, sure. And so I started walking around and keeping a list of questions that I would ask the president. My list had grown to 17 questions. I kid you not. And so the honor guards who were facing the back of Reagan, I could see them whispering each other. That's Johnson. 17 questions. This is going to be good. So they started moving their flags closer. (laughs) My chance to speak. I looked at President Reagan. I simply said, President Reagan, how are you doing? Sir, it's the the, the wife. It was so bad that my mouth, Reagan just sat there and started looking at my mouth move. And finally, he starts laughing. You're a big, you're a joker. And he walks upon the stage. 
Now, Reagan is giving his speech. And as you know, the great communicator. And in the middle of his speech, he stops. He looks over at me at the door and Reagan starts laughing. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry that, that, that Johnson over at the door. I was known as the only person to make the great communicator mess up. In fact, if you go to Blockbuster this day and you look under presidential bloopers, there's a a DVD, you'll see a much skinnier me, but you will see that event take place there. And you can imagine I was very humbled after that. (laughs) Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, once again, I thank you so much for this opportunity to be able to share your word today. I asked a favor, dear Father, that I asked every time that I speak, and that is that you take self out of Terry Johnson. Help me to always remember that it's you, dear Lord, who gives me my strength. In your name I pray, amen. When Alvin had asked me to speak, he said, Terry, is there a way that you can Mix a little of your personal story and some other stuff together. And so I said, Alvin, I will try. <laughs> I'm going to invite you to open up your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Mark, chapter 10. That's the book of Mark, chapter 10. And here we have a very familiar story. Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. Then they came to Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 49, Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man, cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and he followed Jesus along the road. Here we have a situation of someone who is facing an impossible situation. By just reading this, You would think, why in the world would he think that this Jesus would help him? In fact, I had the chance to read a little bit of ancient history. In fact, Josephus, the famous Jewish historian, talks a little bit about people in those days who were blind or had a handicap. It said that most likely... That when Bartimaeus, or a blind person in those days, would wake up, they would have to beg someone to take them to the city gates. After begging someone to take them to the city gates, they would have to beg all day long, sometimes as much as 18 hours, 
And when they were done begging, they had to beg someone to take them back home again. Can you just imagine that? Begging someone to take you to go beg, after begging all day long, begging for someone to bring you back home. And this must have taken place for Bartimaeus many, many times. Now, the interesting thing here is is that when he heard that it was Jesus coming, he began to shout and he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, I like to say that Bartimaeus wasn't blind. And some of you may say, well, pastor, it says right there he was blind. But the phrase or the title, son of David, was used only for the true Messiah. So other words, Bartimaeus may have been physically blind, but he was not spiritually blind. And there were many in that day who, who could physically see Jesus, but they could not spiritually see Jesus. Oh friends, that's good news for us. It lets us know no matter what we might go through in life, no matter how bad things might seem, we can always Spiritually see Jesus. And it's interesting that some of the people who probably brought Bartimaeus there were some of the very ones telling him to be quiet. Friends, that's why I say it's very important to make Jesus your best friend. Make Jesus the one that you go through, go to first when you face problems, when you face difficulties. I had the privilege of training as a psychologist there at Loma Linda. In fact, um, when I would do my, my little counseling sessions, there was a little plaque that I had on my desk that my grandmother had given to me. And it's a little plaque that I put on my desk. In fact, if you visit my office, you'll still see it. And it simply says this, have you prayed about it? And I would have clients come in and they would come in and getting ready to start. And I would simply look at this little plaque, point at it and say, whatever, before you even talk to me, have you prayed about it? Now, if it was something very emergency or serious, I would no, definitely talk to them. But if it's just something they want, I said, no, no, no. You go, you talk to Jesus and then you come back to me. Because when it boils down to it, friends... The only one who's going to stick by us closer than a brother is going to be that of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, if Bartimaeus would have listened to some of these people, his story would have been over with right there. They would have said, be quiet, don't bother Jesus. He doesn't have time for you. And he could have easily gotten discouraged and walked away. In fact, many of us, as we face spiritual difficulties, many times, instead of us going to Jesus first, we may go to a friend or a neighbor or someone, and that person may say something we don't like, and once again, we get discouraged. And maybe we walk away. But Bartimaeus didn't do that. The word of God says that he cried even the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, if I could take you back in time just a little bit, if you could imagine a little 
second grader. I mean, he's a little cute fella. Except the only thing is that he's bigger than the rest of the kids. You see, the average little second grader was like this tall. He was this tall and this wide. Bless his heart. When he was born, he weighed 11 pounds and 10 ounces. His poor mother, that's exactly right. And while he was in the second grade, everything was normal for him. He loved people except one thing. This public school decided to close down all the little schools and to create a mega elementary school. And so the teacher went from teaching a class of 19 students to 57. Can you just imagine that? One second grade teacher with 57 students. She didn't know what to do, and so she decided she would divide the class into three sections. The very first section were for kids who could learn very fast. The middle section were for kids she had to work with just a little bit longer. And the third section were for kids who were in their own world. Well, this little fellow started off in the front row. I mean, he loved to talk. He was energetic. He loved school. One day, something happened that forever changed his life. You see, the teacher was writing something on the chalkboard. And he looked up, and it was simply the ABCs. And the teacher stopped after the letter D and said, I need someone to come up here and finish writing their ABCs. This little fellow who was sitting on the front row was thinking, don't pick me. Don't pick me. Don't pick me. And you know what happens when we say that. The teacher looked right at him and said, you, come up here. And the little fellow goes up. She says, I want you to simply write your ABCs and have a seat. So the little fellow wrote A, B, C, and then he froze. The teacher said, well, go ahead, finish. And he, he, he stood there. She says, well, let's go ahead and say your ABCs. He said, A, B, C. And then he froze. And then the teacher realized that this little fella had been faking it. All the times they would have reading, he would go to the bathroom or he would have an excuse. He left it at home. So she didn't know what to do. So she took the little fellow and put him in the second row and then eventually the third row. And she just couldn't get him to read or to understand anything. And finally, in her frustration, she just set him in the back of the class and she gave him a coloring book. Boy, he said, I love school. All I have to do is color. And while the rest of the kids would learn their ABCs and different things, and he would be in the back just coloring away, as happy as he could be. Well, finally, after four or five months, another teacher walks in, and she sees him in the back and sees him with a coloring book, and she asked him this question. 
So why are you in the back of the class? And he says, I don't know. And so she asked the teacher and the teacher said something that forever changed his life. The teacher simply said, he's back there because he's a little mentally challenged and, and um, I'm going to just let him stay there until the end of the school year and then we'll, we'll get him out of here. And when that little fella heard that, he stopped even coloring. And so finally, the teacher didn't know what to do until she had him see a child psychologist who was part of the school district. And they met with him for three or four weeks. And finally, the psychologist said, no, we're friends. Simply say your ABCs and you can get out of here and go back to class. And once again, the little fellow froze at D. And so the psychologist wrote a report. Now, if you were to visit... My family home there in Troutdale, Oregon, outside of Portland, you would see our family Bible. And you open up that family Bible and there would be a letter. And normally I carry a copy of it and let people just see with their own eyes. And it basically says, Terry L. Johnson, that's me, is mentally incompetent. He will never be able to learn past the third grade. Our suggestion is to take him out of the school system, place him in the school for kids with severe, severe disabilities. Hopefully by the age of 18, he will learn a trade or a skill and be able to fit back into society. Signed by the superintendent of the state of Oregon. In those days, the superintendent was appointed by the governor himself. Like Bartimaeus, I found myself in a hopeless situation. A situation that seemed impossible. You had the teacher saying that he would never be able to learn to read. You have the psychologist who said, I've spent time, I've evaluated. He can never be able to learn past the third grade. And then to top it off, you have the superintendent appointed by the governor of the state saying that our office has reviewed everything and we agree. Like Bartimaeus, that could have been the end of Terry Johnson. But there was one thing they didn't count on. And at New Hope, I talked about this last week. And that was a praying mother. Oh, friends, I truly believe in my heart that some of us in this very room, I don't care if you're 90 years old or if you're five years old, you are where you are because someone prayed for you. Don't ever think that you are so smart, so gifted that I'm where I'm at because of me. No. God is honoring the prayers of someone who prayed for you. That person may have passed away many, many years ago, but the Lord is still Honoring those prayers. Someone prayed that my son will know Jesus. And that's one of the reasons you're in this room here today. Someone prayed many years ago that my daughter, I just pray that she will understand that Jesus loves her. And that's part of the reason you have that love for Jesus today. Because someone cried out for you. Someone cried out, oh Jesus, son of David, have mercy. And we're still living off those prayers.
You see, if you were to visit our home and you were to see that family Bible and look underneath it, you would see another piece of paper. And on that piece of paper, it has a 117 different elementary schools written on it. Every single one of them has a line drawn through it. You see, mother made a list up of all the schools she could think of. She was going to have me move with relatives in Louisiana, California, anything it would take to get her son back in a normal school system. Except mother had one problem, and that is mother's extremely honest. And when the teachers would ask, or the principal would say, well, why can't he go back to his old school? The mother would tell them the whole story. And they would say, the superintendent. And many of them would just hang up the phone on her. Finally, a next door neighbor towards the end of that summer, and I will never forget that summer as long as I live, because my mother would pray over me. Every single night, she would say, Lord, do a miracle for my son. Every night faithfully. Well, a neighbor said, well, you know, my grandkids went to Columbia Christian, this little non-denominational Christian school down the street. They're not very big at all, but maybe they'll take them. And so my mother had a meeting with the principal and the principal and my mom talked and he heard the whole story. And he was a good Christian man. And he said, Mrs. Johnson, you know, I really understand what you're going through, but we're a small school. I could never ask the teacher to spend that much time with one single student. He says, at least let's kneel and have a word of prayer that God will do something. And so my mom and that principal got on their knees and they prayed. And when they were done, they got up and he told my mom bye. And there was a teacher who was standing by the door. Now that principal said that he had done something with my mom that he had never did in his 33 years of being a principal. And that was to leave the door open, especially if it was a sensitive conversation. But he left the door open. And as a result of that, there was a teacher standing on the outside. And that teacher walked in as my mom walked out. And she went up to the principal and simply said, what grade would the little fellow be in? And the principal said, who are you talking about? The lady who was just here, her son. And he said, well, I don't know if he didn't learn anything in the second grade. I guess he would have to do that all over again. She says, you know, that's my class this year. He says, yes. She says, why don't you let me take him? He says, Mrs. Sherlock, that would be way too much. She says, I'll make a deal. Let me have him for six months. And if he can't learn to read or get any better after six months, then we can, you can take him away. At least let's say we tried. And so, friends, I will never forget that very first day of class. Mrs. Sherlock was doing something up front, and all of a sudden you could hear a squeak, squeak, squeak. She turned around and said, who's making that noise in my class? And it was me, and I had my desk, and I was pulling it to the corner. She walked over to me and said, son, what do you think you're doing? I said, sitting in the corner. I always sit in the corner. She said, well, not in my class. She picked up the desk, brought it to the front row, and sat it down. And I thought, whoa, I like this lady. She says, well, have a seat right here. I'm going to give the rest of the kids their assignment. I'll be right back. Now, friends, I will never forget Mrs. Sherlock as long as I live. She was originally from Ireland, and Mrs. Sherlock was five foot tall and five foot wide. Bless her heart. (laughs) Mrs. Sherlock came back with a Bible. She sat the Bible on the desk. She says, all right, we're going to work on your reading. I looked at her and said, I can't. She says, what would you just say? 
I said, I can't read. She said, I better never hear that word. Can't, don't, quit, give up. Any of those words in my class or you're going to get in trouble. What does the letter look like to you? That's all I'm asking to do is to try. And once again, I said, I can't. She says, wait right here. I have the cure. I'm thinking she's going to come back with some glasses or maybe a magnifying glass. I like this lady. Well, she came back okay. Now, some of us older ones remember those days when they could still spank in stool. She came back with a 12-inch ruler. She sat that ruler right next to that Bible and says, If you say one more negative word without trying, you're going to get it. What does the letter look like to you? And once again, I said, I can't. And she took that ruler and went, pow, right on my hand. And from that moment on, I thought she was the meanest lady I had ever met in the world. Every day at recess, the first 15 minutes, while the rest of the kids would be out playing, she would simply take out her Bible, take out her ruler, and says, all right, we're going to work on your reading. After school, when all the kids could play while the buses were lining up, she would be there with me with her Bible and her ruler. Day after day after day after day. Friends, finally in six months... Guess who was reading? Terry Johnson had learned to read. It was absolutely a miracle. In fact, um, when I was at the president's, in the president's honor guard, one of the first things you do is you have to take what we call a presidential psychological examination. Anyone who works within 10 feet of the president of the United States, they have to go through this three-day series of tests. And it's just a fancy test to see if you're crazy or not. That's what it boils down to. So we're in the room and there's Secret Service, CIA agents, all these guys. And we stayed for three days and they finally said everyone had passed. Except we would like to see one person. Where is Terry Johnson? I remember Secret Service agents walking by me said, man, you must have lied or cheated. They're going to get you. I'm horrified thinking I'm going to get arrested here. And so I decided I would be smart. I would let everybody leave and then I would go to the instructor. So I let the whole class empty out. And I walk over to the instructor and I said, I'm Terry Johnson. She says, you're Terry Johnson? I said, yes. She says, I would like to shake your hand. So shake my hand? Sure. She says, the reporters will be up here any minute with their cameras and stuff. This is so exciting. Reporters and cameras? She says, we're taking bets on you downstairs. Taking bets on me? She says, don't you know? I said, no, what? You're going to be the first handicapped person to work for Ronald Reagan. (laughs) Handicap? She says, we're trying to figure out what method they use to be able to teach you to read. Because you have dyslexia. Not only do you have dyslexia, you have one of the worst cases we've ever seen. And so she started naming all these fancy formulas and things. I said, ma'am, I've never had any of that stuff. She says, well, you better tell me the truth. You know they're going to do a background check on you. I said, ma'am, I've never had any of that stuff. And they eventually did my background check, which in those days was $80,000. And in my White House files, my records to this very day, it simply says, the only thing we can trace of Terry Johnson learning to read was a teacher in the second grade using a Bible. That's in my White House files. Friends, we serve an awesome God. We serve a God that can take situations that seem impossible to us. And he's able to turn it around for his glory. 
Now, friends, I don't say any of this for me to brag, and the Lord knows those who know me. But I'm less than six classes away from completing my Ph.D., the same little fellow who they said would never be able to learn past the third grade. So my question to you here today, what are you facing that seems impossible? What situation is making you want to give up? What child in your mind you have just said there's just no way that this this son or this daughter is going to be able to know Jesus? Friends, I have one word for you. Nothing is impossible. As I close here today, there's a story I want to share with you which is very close to my heart. I normally... Don't even say this in public. But one of the things I decided to do was to get my license of being a chaplain. Because that would help me to be able to go into prisons and different places. And those who know that prisons and juvenile homes, homes they have one of the largest population of kids with learning disabilities. Or adults who had had learning disabilities. And so once I received my license and there was a chaplain who we had in the state of Oregon who was in charge of the entire penitentiary system, the entire thing. And he had heard me speak once, and he says, man, if you could get in the system here and speak, these guys would know the schools that you talk about. It would really make a difference. And so I said, sure, Fred, anytime. A couple years went by, and I was at a camp meeting, and he came to me and says, Johnson, it's set up. You're going to speak at the Oregon Penitentiary System. And we're going to do something that we've never done before. We're going to put as many prisoners as we can together. And we want you to share your story. And so I spoke to all these guys. And I tell you, you had everything in that room from gang members, neo-Nazis, you name it. They were all there. I had a prayer team who was praying in the parking lot for me. And I'll never forget that Fred said, in order for you to speak, you're going to have to sign a paper. And that is simply that if anything happens, we have an emergency door. We're going to drag you to that door. We'll drag you down the hallway, take you in the courtyard. There'll be a car waiting for you there. And then you'll get out of here. Now, the other thing is you can't leave the stage. We're going to have guards posted all along the bottom of the uh, the little platform. And so I spoke. and, And afterwards, I asked these guys... If any of you would just like to be a better person, I'm going to invite you to stand. And these guys started standing and started crying. It was just absolutely unbelievable. A spirit in that room to this day is just, they still talk about it, the guards. Now, there was one person they brought in after everyone had already been seated. And only those on the platform could see him because he was in the very, very, very back. And it was interesting because he had chains on, handcuffs and then a chain, a chain that went to another chain around his waist, and then another chain to shackles on his ankle. He had four guards. They sat him in a chair. These guards had their nightsticks out, and they surrounded him the entire time I was speaking. And when I made that appeal to stand up, 
This guy stood up. The guards pushed him back down again. He stood up. And finally, they're almost fighting back there. They're trying to hold him down. He's trying to stand up. And I'm thinking, if this guy wants to make a stand for God, let him stand. And so before I knew it, it just I don't know what I did. I jumped off of the platform. And as I jumped off, the guards tried to reach me, but the prisoner kept coming in closer. They were trying to pat me on the back, and I just kept on walking to the back. I get to the back, and the guards and these guys are fighting. I yell, stop. If he wants to stand up for God, what harm is that? Let him stand. And the guards backed away. And this guy stood up. Then he walked over to me. He gets within six inches of my face. And he simply says, you don't remember me, do you? Now, trust me, if I knew someone that bad that they had to have four guards, shackles, handcuffs, I think I would have remembered him. I said, well, no. He said, who sat next to you in the second grade before they put you in the corner with that coloring book? It was one of my classmates who I hadn't seen. And all those years, over 20-something years, he says, me, it's Tim. He says, Johnson, man, this doesn't make sense. You were worse than I was, and look at you now. He says, you want to hear my story? He says, they put me in McLaren the next year. I thought for sure I would see you there. And you just sort of be so glad your mother didn't listen to them. That was the worst place that you can ever imagine. He says, by the time I was 15, I had been arrested 17 times. They would catch me, bring me back there, catch me, bring me back there. And finally, after my 17th birthday, they just let us loose and just said, do what you want to do. He says, I started selling drugs. He says, I want you to go home. I want you to do an internet search. Get on the internet and just simply type in the word human calculator. He says, that was my street name. Because I would always tell people I had problems reading, but I could do math and no one would believe me. So I started selling drugs and they called me the human calculator because I never used paper. All my transactions were in my head. He says, when they arrested me, I was the largest drug seller from San Francisco to Seattle, Washington. $50,000 a week. They originally got me on tax evasion. Then they tied some murders to me. And so that's why I'm here. I'm sentenced for life. I'll never get out of here. So that's why I fight and do all this stuff because I'm going to die in this place. And then he said something to me. He says, Johnson, I just don't understand this. You were worse than I was. You have a master's degree. This doesn't make any sense. What made the difference between you and me? And friends, for the first time in my life, I thought about it. And what made the difference was God's amazing grace. Oh, friends, God's grace is so awesome. His grace is honoring those prayers that were sent up for you. His grace is what keeps you going every single day. My mom had the privilege of Leading Tim to the Lord. Tim now is the assistant chaplain. He'll never get out of prison, but he's the assistant chaplain there in that penitentiary system to this day. 
So don't tell me things are impossible for our God. Don't tell me that the child you've been praying for, it just doesn't seem to work. It just seems like nothing's happening. Because we serve a mighty God. And friends, I would like to end on this note. Maybe there's someone here today that there's someone that you've been praying for. Maybe from your point of view, it looks impossible. It looks hopeless. You have tried and they keep going back to their friends. Don't give up. Maybe you're that person. Maybe you have lost your connection with God. And you want to say today, Lord, I want to connect with you. Maybe you're a young person here and you've been influenced by your friends and they have tempted you to start doing stuff that you know that's not right. And I just want to say to you today, God has a plan for you. Connect with him today. And so as we close here, I would like to have a special prayer for any of you who might have one of the situations I've talked about. Don't worry about who's looking and who's not looking. It's between you and the Lord. And as I have the benediction, I'm going to invite those of you who would like a special prayer to please stand. And it's just between you and the Lord. God bless you. Let's bow our heads. Dear Lord, like Bartimaeus, there are some here in the room that are facing situations that seem impossible. There are some here today, Lord, that has a child. They've been praying for a grandchild, a, a niece, a nephew, but it just seems like, Lord, it just there's no hope. But Lord, we have learned from Bartimaeus here that nothing is impossible with you. When everyone told him to give up, he cried all the more. May that be an example for us here today. Lord, we realize that Bartimaeus did three simple things. He asked you for help. He believed that you could really help him. And he claimed his victory in faith. So I ask that prayer here for my friends. If they don't remember anything else I have said here today, may they remember the power of ABC. Ask, believe, and claim. There are some here today, Lord, that they're not here by accident. You had them come out today. They needed to hear this. I pray now that they will be able to apply it to their life. And once again, Lord, may they realize that nothing is impossible with you. And may you look at us like you did Bartimaeus and say, your faith has made you well. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. 
You may be seated. And thank you so much for allowing me to worship with you. Thank you.